Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love you guys. I love you guys. It's awesome. It's awesome, awesome. What a great day. What a great day. Yeah, I wasn't feeling any pressure till Matthew. And uh, <laughs> one thing wonderful about this church is uh, we just love each other. And you can come up and uh, hit a home run. You can come up and give it a good try. And everybody just loves everybody. So it's awesome. Awesome. What a, isn't a beautiful day today. Great weather. And sorry about the weather. Yeah, it's perfect. That's a joke. <laughs> Sarcasm is a form of humor. Yes. So uh, the scene opens with Luke 24, and we're going to read in the Passion Translation, and it should be on your screen, but very early that Sunday morning, the women made their way to the tomb carrying the spices they had prepared, and among them were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, Jesus' mother. And um, the moms are front and center again, and the, the ladies are getting a place of honor and glory, being the first ones to go after the Lord. And there's no, no real surprises in the Scripture. There's no random acts. There's a reason it's Mary Magdalene. It's the re- there's a reason it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus, the first one really to ever touch Jesus, obviously, his mom. And she represented purity and holiness. She represented the most holy woman they could find in Israel. A young lady, probably in her young teens. The holy one. She represented the one that would help Jesus ushering in the fulfillment of the law out of purity and holiness. Mary Magdalene had seven demons, they say. Seven, the number of perfection. She was perfectly demonized. (laughs) She was fulfilled in her demonization. And she represented the ones that came broken in body, soul, and spirit. The ones that came in need. She represented the ones of Isaiah 61. I've come for the weary. I've come for the broken. She represented a new age of grace where everyone was welcome. And in the midst of Mary Magdalene, there's probably no one in this room that could say they were further away or had a more messed up life than her. Or Mary, the mother of Jesus, none of us in this room probably could say we were holier. In the midst of those two arms, we find every one of us. And the gospel says, come. You're welcome. Come in. And they're they're going to the tomb. And you ever wonder what happened between Jesus' death and the resurrection those few days? There's not a lot said. But he made his way to a place named Sheol, we believe, and 
Can you imagine the minions of the enemy, those little demons, what they thought when they saw Christ, the risen one, not the broken one. He's not a broken man on a cross anymore. He's alive. He's alive. The man's man, the warrior king. What did he wear? I see him robed in a beautiful robe, and he's belted, and hanging on the belt are the keys that he won back, the keys of authority, the keys of hell and death. And can you imagine him strolling through a corridor of hell as a winner, as the victor, as the great I am? Can you imagine our victorious Jesus walking through and coming from his mouth? I am the resurrection and the life. Can you hear the roar? Can you see the enemy's minions shrieking? I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the great I am. I'm the firstborn among the dead. I've conquered hell and death. And I've come to get some of my boys, some of my girls. I'm going to set the captives free. And in, somewhere in a deep place, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, John the Baptist, they could hear the roar. They could hear down the corridor the sound billowing. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And they say, he's coming home. You wonder what happened. But the ladies are coming, and they honored the Sabbath, so they waited on the Sabbath, and they came the very next morning at the break of day. They brought their spices, and they found a tomb that was empty, and the body of Jesus was gone. And there they stood, stunned and perplexed. And suddenly, two men in dazzling white robes, wouldn't you love to buy this DVD? Man, this would be one you just put on repeat. Shining, like lightning appearing above them. Terrified, the women fell to the ground on their faces. And the men in white said to them, why would you look for the living one in a tomb? Or in some of the other versions, why would you look for the living among the dead? It's beautiful, isn't it? He's not here, for he is risen. Have you forsaken what he said to you while he was still in Galilee? The Son of Man is destined to be handed over to sinful men, to be nailed to a cross, and on the third day he'll rise again. You know, he laid, he told them before this was going to happen. This wasn't a total surprise. He said, he talked about this temple is going to be under destruction. We'll rise it again in three days. He told them this would happen, but nobody believed. It was an inconvenient word. We put it on the shelf. We do that, don't we? That's a hard word. I don't understand it. I'll just put it on the shelf, which means I'll forget it and not deal with it. But there was no party. There was no victor parade. When he came out of the tomb, he came out to no one. Where was Peter? Peter had had a bad week the previous week. Peter could have made up some ground by showing up that morning. 
by being a person of faith, by saying, I remember somewhere he said he'd rise on the third day. Why don't I just show up and wait? Where was Mary Magdalene? She was there that time, but she wasn't before. How about Lazarus? He would have been a good one to show up. Blind Bartimaeus. There's a reason for him to come. How about some of the 5,000? We're five of the chosen. We won the lottery. We're five of the 5,000 got to come for the victory parade. If the Atlanta Braves win the World Series, they're having a parade. When the Falcons are going to win, they're going to have a parade. Our kids just, our kids just, participate in youth soccer. They have a parade. They don't even have to win. Where was the parade? Where was the parade? We'll pop down to verse 13. Later that Sunday, two of Jesus' disciples were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a journey of about 17 miles. That got my attention. Well, let's just walk to Emmaus. It's only 17 miles. We don't even like driving 17 miles to church, and they're walking 17 miles. They were in the midst of a discussion about the events of the last few days, and Jesus walked up to them. Why did he walk up to them? Because he could. <laughs> they were unaware it was Jesus. And they got into deep discussion about something, and he asked, why are you sad and gloomy? He's just setting them up, isn't he? And they go on, and haven't you heard? Are you the only person? And Israel hasn't heard. And he, Jesus said, what are you talking about? What things? And they go on to proclaim the gospel, the, the man that would raise, and three days ago the high priest and the rulers sentenced him to death. We all hoped he was the one who would come and re redeem and rescue Israel. We all hoped he'd figure out our political problem. We got a political problem. We all figured he was going to redeem us from our oppressors, Rome. We've got political problems in this country. Jesus didn't address a lot of the political problems of the day. He was going for a higher mission. A higher call. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All this other stuff, including the politics, will work itself out. He was one degree removed from Jesus. He was a, these were disciples, and they missed it. They were looking for a political solution, and they missed it. As I spent some time in the Word the last few days, just a lot of time, I just uh, I was seeing how many people were missing it. And at each story, it became more humbling. And the fear of the Lord grew in me 
for they were missing it. I don't want to miss it, do you? I don't want to miss it at all. And so in verse 24, some of us went to see for ourselves and found the tomb exactly like the woman said, but no one has seen him. And Jesus said to them, why are you so thick-headed? Why do you find it so hard to believe Every word the prophet has spoken. Why are you finding it hard to believe every word? Jesus is putting the challenge down. I have an expectation, disciples. I have an expectation that you believe every word the prophets have spoken. He's saying by the Spirit of God, I have an expectation Church at Bethel, Atlanta, you believe every word the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for Christ Messiah to experience all the sufferings and then afterward to enter his glory? And you can't figure Jesus out because he's frustrated, he's upset with them, and then he turns into the most gracious, patient man as he says he carefully unveiled to them the revelation of himself throughout the scripture. And he started from the beginning and explained the writings of Moses and all the prophets showing how they wrote of him and revealed the truth of himself. Wouldn't you like that DVD? You can't figure him out. He went from frustrated to patiently showing, here's where I was. Here's where God was, the Father was revealing me in scriptures. Let me wind through and just show you who I am and where I am. And as they approached the village, Jesus walked on ahead and it was great. They urged him to stay with them. Jesus had another place he wanted to go. Isn't it great that Jesus changed his mind to be with them? Their hunger for him to be with them caused him to change his plans. Your hunger to be with him will cause him to change his plans. And he joined them at table for supper. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it. And all at once, their eyes were opened and they realized it was Jesus. So this last 40 days of Lent, we've been having communion every time we meet and on Wednesdays and every Sunday and encouraging us to have it at home. They broke the bread and they poured the wine and their eyes were opened. In the worship is revelation. When we worship together like we just did, and wasn't that wonderful? When we worship together, there's revelation. When you give with extravagance, revelation comes. Cornelius was giving alms. He was a Gentile. He was giving alms. And it said heaven noticed his giving. A few days later, all of his household was saved. When we worship, heaven notices. When we worship, our eyes are opened. And their eyes 
were opened and they noticed it was Jesus. And then suddenly, in a flash, Jesus vanished before their very eyes. Why? Because he could. It's victory week. He's messing with them. We're going to have some fun. He's showing up in front of the disciples like, poof, here I am. Scared him to death and then said, do not be afraid, you know. <laughs> but thought about Jesus. Easter's a day of massive crowds. Lindy and I were driving from Alabama this morning, and the roads were empty. I think it's the lowest traffic day on the highways of any day of the year. Thanksgiving, people are traveling. Christmas, people are going to and fro. Easter morning at 7 o'clock, nobody's on the road, which is a cool thing. It's a day for celebration. It's a day for family. It's a day to worship the king. But there are massive crowds in churches today. What did Jesus do when he got massive crowds? Let's take a look. In Luke 8, I don't know that we'll have this on the screen. We won't touch on it too long if you have your Bible. But in Luke 8 and verse 4, soon afterwards, in verse uh, 4, massive crowds gathered from many towns to hear Jesus. And he taught them using metaphors and parables. And he goes into the parable here about the farmer who went out to sow seeds. And he scattered his seeds. Some fell on a hard pathway. And it was quickly trampled down, unable to grow. And some fell on gravel. Though it sprouted, it couldn't take root. It withered for lack of moisture. And other seed fell. There was nothing but weeds. And it too was unable to grow to full maturity for it was choked out by the weeds. Yet some of the seed fell into ground, fertile soil, and it grew up and flourished, and it produced more than a hundredfold harvest of bumper crop. And Jesus added, shouting to all who would hear, listen, listen with your heart, and you will understand. He gets a big crowd, and he says there's four kinds of soil. There's hard soil where my words don't penetrate. People's arms might not be crossed, but their hearts are. Say, so you're not going to get to me, preacher. I don't really even want to be here. My spouse just drugged me. I'm here for Easter. The songs don't touch me. Even Jen Johnson, Jen Stockman, she doesn't touch me. And then there's gravel, and gravel is the seed takes root, and it's joyfully received, but the first sign of trouble, the first hurdle, it withers, and it's gone. And the third kind of soil has weeds, and the word just falls into all the other issues of life. It's just a spoke on the wheel of life. 
hey, Jesus, I got my family, I got my white picket fence, I got my American dream, I got my kids, I got family issues, I'll fit in church, I'll make it once or twice a month. I'll read my Bible once in a while, I'll give part of my heart. I want to stick this on so that it looks good enough. And Jesus gets a massive crowd and divides them into four. He says, which one are you? Jesus was straight and true. This young doctor I was calling on in my business years ago had never read the Bible. He was reading it, and he said, Steve, the words of Jesus are sharp. Like, it kind of took me back. Like, they are kind of sharp. Sometimes when he's frustrated with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he's kind of New York City straight on. Very uncomfortable for our southern genteel. When he's talking to his disciples, he's kind of new, he's kind of California aloof, straight on. In your face, straight and true. But he ain't ever southern, bless your heart. I'll talk about you later, straight and true. He ain't that. He's straight and true. And in a crowd this size, it'd be fair to say some of us fall in each of those four doors. And the Lord got massive crowds, and he got straight and true. Luke 14, 25 I kept wanting to bring a happy Jesus out the tomb message. You're going to get some of that, but I couldn't get away from this. And in Luke 14, that's the parable when he says, you, he got a massive crowd again. If you don't hate your mom and daddy, this has always been a hard verse, right? And... That, that Greek word is, is, is hate, but it's also set aside, which is helpful for me. You know, set aside your family. Like, if you don't make me number one and them second, if you don't set aside your family, you don't have any part of me. I need to be first ahead of your family. If there were three doors and one had me and one had God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and one had my kids and my grandkids. You know which one my wife would pick? She'd pick the Father. She'd pick the Son. And I feel good about that. If you don't, you got to put him first. Got to put him first. John 6 is even worse. He's straight and true. He gets a crowd of thousands. If you don't eat my flesh or drink my blood, you don't have any part of me. He's the great crowd disperser. If you don't hate your friends, if you don't hate your family, if you don't eat my flesh 
If you're bad soil, out of here. Straight and true. And I begin to think about how we as pastors in the West would handle that. What if I invited Jesus to come from Galilee as a guest speaker this morning? He could have been anywhere, but he came to Bethel, Atlanta. And he got up and had a seven-minute sermon about how you need to put me ahead of your family, your children, everyone. Would we pastors get up? He didn't really mean that. Not your kids. Your kids are awesome. Your Peachtree City Bubble kids. He wasn't talking about your kids. Yeah, he was. We'll flip to Matthew 13, 44. The Passion Translation by Brian Simmons. He had a little different take on Matthew 13, 44. I like it. This is the parable about the treasure in the field. And most of the time we look at that treasure as being us and God is doing everything he can to buy us. But listen to this interpretation. I like it. The most accepted interpretation of this parable is that Jesus is the treasure. But Jesus taught that the field is the world. The allegory breaks down for a believer doesn't sell all he has and then buy the world to find Jesus, the treasure. It is more plausible to view the hidden treasure as a symbol of you and me. Jesus is the man who sold all that he owned, leaving his exalted place of glory to come and pay for the sin of the whole world for his, with his own blood, just so he could have you, his treasure. Heaven's kingdom realm is experienced when we realize what a great price Jesus places on our souls, for he gave his sacred blood for us. The rehiding of the treasure is a hint of our new life, hidden in God, Ephesians 1. You're a treasure. And I believe God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus are so straight and true because they have paid the ultimate sacrifice. They have paid and have no reason to apologize for the love they have done to chase us and pursue us. Jesus fulfilled his mission perfectly. He laid down a place in heaven, humbled himself as a man, walked a perfect life, and bought our freedom, bought back the keys of hell and death. He walked through Sheol and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He paid a price. He went all in in poker terms. Those of you who play poker, he, when you go in, he went all in with a million-dollar chip count. And he looks us right in the eye says, what are you going to do about it? You can't roll in your $15 and play. We in the Western church think, oh, I'll just throw in my 20 bucks and play. He's put, in a, he's put it all in. And he's saying, will you go all in? 
Whatever you're all in is, will you go all in? I'm not talking about money, church. Don't get hung up. Don't be the first soil. This isn't about money. It's about him going all in. And that's why Jesus is straight and true. If you don't love me more than your family, he's straight and true. If you don't love me, if you won't eat my flesh, if you won't take on this communion cup, if you won't give your life to me, and, he's, and I'm feeling this weekend, I'm just in it all the last two or three days, I'm just feeling him speaking. Are you all in? Are you straight and true? Are you coming? We pander and make it so easy. If you just say this little verse and walk down an aisle when you're 13, everything's going to be okay. And he's saying, I need you all in. We better not lower the bar because he wasn't lowering the bar. We better not lower it too low because teachers get held accountable to a higher standard. He doesn't do lukewarm. He doesn't do lukewarm. He knows his identity. They know they're amazing. They know they paid the ultimate price. They know they love beyond any kind of love. They know that they can say, this is what it takes, and I want you all in with me. He's straight and true. He's looking for a princely, honorable, gifted, humble, grateful, worshiping, powerful people. It's not a day for us to be presumptuous. It's not a day for us to ask questions. I hear on the Internet and social media and people I love, and they're talking about, I don't know about a God that would allow there to be a hell. Part of, the, part of hell is part of the reason this love is so great. And I would refer anyone who's thinking that way to Isaiah 64. He says, I'm the potter, you're the clay. I'm the potter, you're the clay. And the potter decides what clay to work, what it's going to look like, what color the clay is. The, the potter decides if he's going to keep this, potter decides I'm going to... Why am I going to toss it? What's it going to look like? The potter decides if it goes in the fiery furnace. The clay doesn't get to say, I want it to be orange, not green. The clay doesn't get to say, I want it to be one of those low pots for plants and oranges. Doesn't get to say, I don't want to be one of those tall, skinny ones for orchids. the way we act sometimes. I think we all ought to read Job 38 and 39 once a month, whether we think we need it or not. Read the first few chapters to set it up. And then he starts to say, where were you? When I brought forth the stars of the heaven, where were you? When I said, oceans, you can come this far. Where were you, Job? 
because our grace message can go so far that people think, God, I don't know about hell. I don't know if you're the only way. We need a whole dose of humility, hunger. By humility and fear of the Lord are honor and riches and life. Jesus is so kind in Luke 24. He says, hey, let me show you my hands, my pierced hands and my feet. A minute ago, he's frustrated. You need to know all the words. You need to know what the prophets are saying. And then he's like, let me show you my hands and feet. Hey, bring some broiled fish. I want to eat it so you know I'm real. You know I'm a man. You know I'm back. I'm not a ghost. He's so kind. The resurrection is everything. It's the most important event in human history. What does the world have to offer in afterlife? You go to a public school, it's Darwinism, it's evolutionism. It's a song by Kansas in the 70s, one of the prettiest songs ever, Dust in the Wind. All we are is dust in the wind. They've got a beautiful song with a really bad message. Or maybe you can be part of the universe and you can be the circle of life. And they offer, well, your dust will go back into the ground and life will continue. What does the world have to offer for an afterlife? But Jesus, rising from the dead, offers us hope that's beyond all measure. It's an amazing story. It's a wonderful story. It's the most amazing future. If you're here and your body's broken or you're under, you're under disease or illness, there's a promise of the resurrected Christ, you get a new body. Not just your old body, you get a new body. Like, I've always wanted an NFL body. Like, I'm not getting my old body. I'm getting a new body. I get to look like an NFL linebacker in heaven if I really want to. I'm sure of it. You get a new body. Some of you uh, may be holding on in a rough marriage. And you're holding on and you've given up hope that you could have an A-grade marriage. There's a wedding. There's a feast in your future. There's hope in our future. You know, you may say, I, I just never see myself owning a home, Pastor. It's never, and I've lost hope. He's gone to prepare a place for you. There's hope in your future. The resurrection creates hope. The resurrection is proof that there's something good in our future. 
The resurrection is our, our Nineveh, our walls get to be rebuilt. Our story isn't over. If it's not over, it's not done. Our the resurrection is hope, and the world has nothing but dust in the wind. And we have, I've gone to prepare a place for you. The world throws us a lot of curveballs. Lindy's has a sister that was born two days and they lost her. Her name is Janine. The world has no hope for Janine. The risen Christ, the gospel of the Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord has hope for Janine. Lindy and I get to see Janine one day. There's hope in the resurrection and it's not a fairy tale. The two saw him. The 12 saw him. The 500 saw him. He said, look at my pierced hands. Look at my pierced feet. There's hope in the resurrection. There's hope for all of us. And so I look forward to our future. Our future is one of nobility. Our future is one of hope. Our future is one of inspiration. Suffering is intolerable if you're not sure of your salvation, said Martin Luther. But the resurrection gave our pain a purpose. The resurrection isn't just hope and victory in the future when I die. The resurrection gives me hope for today. Because those keys that he won... Some of them were healing. Some of them were our goodness. Some of them were overcoming. Some of those were making those relationships better. It's not just by and by as we were taught, as we were kids. It is today the resurrected Christ. He still walks. I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't lower the bar. Because his identity was so sure, he has so much to offer. When you have this much to offer and you know it, you don't lower the price. You just look the customer in the eye and say, it's worth it. So am I. We aren't lowering the price. So I want to commend you as a church. If you think about our last few years from our journey from ABC as our journey from to Sandy Creek High School, a journey to Saturday nights, our journey to here. I had one of my pastor friends, Steve Witt from Bethel, Cleveland. He said, not many churches would have survived what you guys have done. Tent in the mud. Come join us for Tent in the Mud. (laughs) Your generosity, your flexibility, you're willing to pursue him no matter what, and your honoring of us and leaders through what what often looks like, what the heck are they doing? (laughs) I want to commend you. 
I think about it too long, I cry when I think about in the mud on those cold mornings. And I look around and the way you're worshiping. And you're almost, it's almost the tougher it got, the better we worshiped. The colder it got, the wetter it got, the muddier it got. We're just like, we're doing this, aren't we? Yeah, we're doing it. We're going there, aren't we? Yeah, we're going there. Yeah. Really? You drive by a lot of fancy, nice churches to get to the mud. Like, like you bring your family like, we're going here? There'll be a day when this campus is filled with beautiful buildings and trails and, and waterfalls and a big lake and an amphitheater and a mile running trail and a prayer chapel and a 24-7 prayer chapel and a smaller, you know, there'll be a day. But you get to say, hey, I was in that original 300 that was in the mud. And we were giving the first dollars and the first, the first shouts of praise. We were raising our hallelujah. And we were soaking this ground with the praises of our king. And we were trying to live as resurrected people. And in our midst, we saw some get saved, many. In our midst, we saw some get healed, many. In our midst, we saw relationships get healed, many. And we weathered the two steps forward and the one step back when it didn't feel like we had victory and we got our head off the ground. We crawled back up and we said, we're doing this, aren't we? And we won another couple of victories and once in a while a defeat. And we stuck together. We're building a resurrected life that the resurrected king would say, that's my kids. They're doing it, aren't they? He's talking to the father like he's looking down. The Lord at the right hand of the father, looking down from the father. Hey, they're doing the best they can, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They're doing good. They're trying real hard. They're doing good. There's glory clouds coming up. People getting saved, people getting healed. Every week there's a testimony that touches my heart that you guys do. And I'll close with this one. Joseph Blanchard. You all know Joseph and Martha, Daniel, Daniel's brother. They, um, he was in Taco Bell. He'd already had a little dinner, but he was still a little hungry. You know how that goes? Just seeing him get me a little burrito on the way home. My wife won't know. I'm throwing him under the bus in front of 500 people. Is he here? Stand up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm going to bless you.
this gun t- if this doesn't t- this testimony doesn't tug on your heart, you're in uh, door number one on the hard dirt. <laughs> and you need to repent. And I'm serious. Gets his burrito. He's walking out, and the Holy Spirit's still small voice says, go back and talk to those boys. There's eight boys. They're kind of inner city kids from Fairburn. There's eight black kids in there. I mean, you're kind of a middle-aged old white guy. And the Holy Spirit's saying, go talk to those eight kids. How many are, like, okay with that? Amen. I better get more than one. But I'm just like, oh, that tugs my heart, and you were obedient. Like, we're not always obedient. But you walked back in and struck up a conversation. And I know your ministry works with kids in Montgomery, so you're probably better at it than most anybody at the room. But you were obedient, and you engaged them, and they knew somebody cared. And there was somebody who was trying, and somebody wanted to hear their story. And within about 20 minutes, eight young men bowed their head to pray or receive Christ. Yeah. It's awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. So good. And the Father and the Son, they're doing good, aren't they? Yeah, they're doing good. They're living the resurrected life. They're trying. They're giving it a go. They're worshiping hard. Y'all are doing it. I said that was going to be the last testimony. I lied. There's one more. This week I sat in second year school of ministry, and I walked in. It was 8 o'clock. I was a little, I was hungry. I was ready to go home. I'd been in school a little bit. And I sat down, and there was an assignment that day. You have four minutes, students. Get up for four minutes. Be brief. Be anointed. Be seated. (laughs) And bring the glory. You got four minutes. Bring the glory. Should I pick someone in the crowd to give you four minutes to come up and bring the glory? And I said, well, I'll just sit down and listen to one. And as she spoke, I was drawn into her story, and I was compelled to listen to one more. And as he spoke, I was compelled by a story, and I was compelled to listen to one more. And as she sang a song she wrote... I was compelled to listen. 12, 15 people later, what I saw in that class was lightness, laughter, and love. What I saw was extreme vulnerability in a family that that is incredibly diverse class, loving each other. And I thought, heaven is invading earth. We're doing it. The church is doing it. The school is doing it. 
It's happening. It's happening. So pray with me. The Holy Spirit's whispered into your ear that you're in any other kind of soil but that fourth one. I'd encourage you to repent, change the way you think. If the weeds of life, the call to riches, our jobs, our families, are interviewing, interfering with our pursuit of you, we say, Holy Spirit, speak to us, come. If we've put family before you, Lord, we repent, we say, come. And if we're not willing to ingest your life, Christ in us, the hope of glory, we repent and we say, come. And let us be a resurrected people a people of hope, a people of the day, sons of the day and daughters of light. Let us be a people that carry hope that there's always more than enough, that we carry the more than enough, that we bring what little we have, our loaf, our fish, and we say thanks, and Lord, you make it more than enough in us. Make us a more than enough people, we pray. And all the people said, amen, amen. Y'all are amazing. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.